Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Uh, We are continuing our study today of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, Paul founded these Galatian churches that were predominantly Gentile, that is, non-Jewish. They weren't of Jewish descent. And he declared Christ to them. Uh, They gladly expressed faith in Christ and uh, uh, seemed to to apparently receive the Spirit of God. And, And there was witness of that that we read about last week. Uh, but now other teachers have, have come in, those of the circumcision party, they've infiltrated uh, Paul's beloved church, uh, and, and they're teaching that following the Old Testament law is actually a requirement for being uh, right with God, for having a right standing with God. Um, and last week we, we read of Paul's uh, very heated words as he called the Galatians foolish and as he bombards them with rhetorical questions about, don't you know what's true? Have you forgotten all of this? Um, and so uh, he, he, he asks all these rhetorical questions calculated to, to wake them up, to shake them, uh, to remind them that they did, in fact, receive the Spirit, which is the new covenant uh, mark of God's people, uh, not by works of the law, which they were now wanting to, to follow as a basis for honoring God or as a basis for winning his favor, uh, they did not receive it there, but Paul appeals to the Galatians' experience that they, in fact, received the Spirit before they were ever interested in keeping the Old Testament law. But Paul's not done arguing his point. He's, he's made an argument that has been subjective to this point, which is, that is one that's based on the Galatians' own experience, right? They, they received the Spirit before they were interested in circumcision and the Old Testament law. But now Paul moves on to making an, an explicitly objective argument. That is one that's independent uh, of uh, the Galatians' experience. Paul's not satisfied with any lack of clarity regarding the basis for our right standing before God and the basis on which we receive God's blessings, including his spirit. And so this matters to Paul. He is not satisfied with any lack of clarity on this point. And why is he Why does he care about this so much? Well, it's because God cares about this so much. God is not satisfied to leave us with any lack of clarity for our understanding of our basis for our relationship with God. So these words are relevant to the Galatians as they were being swayed from what was true, and it's relevant for us today. We we face similar temptations. So let's read our passage this morning with expectation that God is going to speak to us today. That's his intention. He is going to make it happen So let's look at Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start reading uh, in verse 5. This is God's inspired word. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we ask you to open our eyes. We need you um, to help us understand why these words were included in the book that you have given to us and preserved for us for thousands of years. Lord, we pray that you would convict us where needed. pray that you bring comfort where needed. Lord, you embolden us where needed. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, have you ever had a job where you weren't quite sure of the criteria used uh, for your performance evaluation? Uh, my workplace has been evolving a lot uh, in just a few, three, almost three years I've been there. Um, I've had three different direct supervisors since I began. Uh, Human Resources has rolled out uh, a couple different performance evaluation and goal-setting tools, and none of them seem to be sticking yet, so it's hard to know which one's going to be around you know, for the future. And there's been some pretty major, um, uh, pretty major changes in terms of new hires and, and turnover, both in HR as well as in leadership within the company. There's all this change. And um, during this past year's salary, uh, salary raise, uh, the... I essentially had no clue uh, what the process was uh, for evaluating employee performance. Um, there weren't any metrics, I didn't receive any feedback, and apparently my direct supervisor, the person seeing my work on a day-to-day -day basis, had zero input on my race. And so I was left with this question, uh, an unanswered question, uh, how does my employer evaluate me? I didn't know what they were basing it off of. Was it completely independent of what I was doing? Was it just, well, the company did well, so everyone gets this percent boost? It was kind of, that was kind of the answer given. It's like, okay. That's an important question. How does my employer evaluate? Well, we've got in our passage today uh, a question that needs answered, and it is eternally more significant than the question I just asked, and it's this. How does God evaluate us? That is, what criteria does God use when evaluating us? How does he determine who receives his spirit and who doesn't? What's the basis for his blessing? This is a question we must know the answer to. Um, if we don't know, believe, and act on the, the true answer to this question, we're in big trouble. Um, I mean, if we don't know the criteria of a workplace performance review, at, 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 you know, at worst, we may miss out on a raise or, or, or a, uh, a promotion, or at worst, perhaps get, get fired, right, for not knowing the standards and not meeting the standards, right? But if we don't know the criteria for how God evaluates humans, we're going to miss out on all of God's blessings, which are 
far better than any raise you've ever received. And we'll instead be the objects of God's curse, which is worse than anything you can imagine. So how God evaluates us is a question we must know the answer to. And we're going to go about answering this question the same way that Paul does, by considering two possible options, two possible answers. So how does God evaluate us? Well, either he does so by works of the law, or he does so by hearing with faith. Two options in front of us. We see that um, Paul actually mentions this question twice. They are rhetorical questions that he asks of the Galatians. So he, he's saying, you know the right answer to this. It's not a mystery. Verse, uh, verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, again, the mark of God's favor, the Spirit doesn't abide in you unless you are right with God, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The, the implied answer is by hearing with faith. But Paul isn't satisfied just to leave it as a rhetorical question. He now explicitly gives the answer. It's like, in case you missed it, it's by faith. <laughs> he is unsatisfied to leave any lack of clarity. So we are going to start by considering these two options. And we're going we're to consider the option that Paul does, that he presents first, which is option one, how does God evaluate us? Option one, by hearing with faith. So the first option by, uh, for being made right with God and receiving a spirit is by hearing with faith. Um, last week we read in verses five and six, the Galatians received the spirit, I just mentioned this, by hearing with faith just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So the Galatians heard and received by faith, he's saying, hey, you're just like Abraham. He believed God, and he was counted righteous. That is, Paul's saying that the Galatian Gentiles, remember, Gentiles, non-Jews, who up to this point have not been observing the Old Testament law, which included circumcision, they are actually, he's saying, following in the footsteps of Abraham, who received from God the commandment to be circumcised. The, the Jewish teachers who are troubling the Galatians are, are basically saying this. They're saying, look at Abraham right? He's set apart by God. He's, he's destined for blessing, and he recite, received the sign of circumcision. Be like Abraham and be circumcised, keeping the law given to him and to his offspring. But Paul's saying this. He's saying, look at Abraham. He's set apart by God, destined for blessing, and he believed God. Be like Abraham and believe God, trusting in his promises. Paul's using some of the arguments of his own opponents, talking about, you, you think Abraham's all that? Okay, look at what Abraham really did. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was because Abraham believed God, and not that he kept God's law, that Abraham was counted by God as righteous. And so, the key is belief. Abraham believed God. That was the reason. The key is faith. Paul makes this abundantly clear in the next verse, verse 7. He says, know then, again, he's saying, this is the one imperative that he has, the one action word he uses in this passage. He says, if anything, you're going to do anything. Know this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That is, the, the true sons of Abraham, his, his rightful heirs are not those who you might think are those by birth, uh, those who follow uh, the circumcision he was given by God, no, the, the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith. And this faith was counted as righteousness to Abraham. Uh, the, the, the same faith that was counted to him as righteousness is the same faith that would justify the Gentiles. Verse 8 says exactly this. Paul says, 
and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, that is declare righteous, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So here's the logic. We need to be counted righteous by God. Why? Because if we're counted righteous by God, then we receive all of his blessings. That's the only way we get in on his blessings. God cannot bless those who are unrighteous. He must curse those who are unrighteous. He is a just God. So we need, we need to be counted righteous by God. But how are we counted righteous by God? Well, we're counted righteous by God through faith, the same way that Abraham was counted righteous by God. And all who trust in God, just as Abraham did, are now considered sons of Abraham. Verse 7 says that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. But what's so good about being the sons of Abraham? That to us might seem irrelevant. Who cares if you're a son of Abraham? What does that have to do with anything? Aren't we just interested in our relationship with God? Well, it means that we are actually the rightful heirs of the inheritance that is promised to Abraham. If we are his sons, we are his heirs. We are, if you will, named beneficiaries of all that Abraham was promised. So what was Abraham promised? What do we get to inherit? Well, in Genesis 12, we learn uh, that God called Abraham, who at the time was simply Abram of Ur. He didn't know God. He, didn't, he wasn't seeking after God. He was just your average uh, Chaldean idol worshiper. That was Abram. But God intersected Abram's life, and we read this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is God's initiative, God's promise to Abram. He says this, or it says this, Now the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, in his mercy, intercepts Abraham from his idolatrous way of living and promises to him various good things. He promises him a land. That's the land of Canaan. It's, it's the one described later by God as the land that is uh, it's a good and broad land, flowing with milk and honey. Think of the VeggieTales song, right? But man, think of a good and broad land. Oftentimes when we're a little urban, urban you know, living, you get to own a quarter of an acre or 300 square feet or whatever it is. Broad land. They have room to grow, to spread out, to, to farm and to, and to let their kids play and run around safely. It's a good land. It's it's flowing with milk and honey. This is a profitable, uh, prosperous land. There is life here. There is fruit here. More than that, God promises Abraham blessing. That is, Abraham's going to experience the reversal of the curse from Genesis 3, when sin entered the world and tainted every good thing that God created. So rather than that curse, he's promising him the opposite of all that curse, blessing. And God promises Abram that he'll make his name great. That is, Abram of Ur will be remembered as Abraham, father of a multitude, the man of faith and father of many. And so Abraham is this recipient 
of God's promise of a good and broad land, the reversal of the curse, and a well-renowned name. And that blessing goes to his heirs. The sons of Abraham are going to inherit all of that. Our names are written on the will. (laughs) When Abraham's gone, this is what we get. We inherit blessing. It gets passed through Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just, guess what? You're going to be first, and then all the families of the earth will be blessed. No, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's via Abraham. This blessing finds its, its complete fulfillment in eternal paradise. For those who are in Abraham, there awaits a promised land, one that flows not only with milk and honey, but with the river of life. For those in Abraham, there awaits God's blessing, the final reverse of the curse of sin. Uh, fruit will replace thorns. Joy will replace sorrow. Laughter will replace pain. And life is going to replace death itself. Death will be conquered and be no more. Here's the good news. The gospel, as Paul says, that was preached beforehand to Abraham. That's a cool note. The gospel itself was preached to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. God in his mercy does not limit the blessing of Abraham to a particular bloodline. No, all who are of faith get in on the blessings promised to Abraham. The nations is the word used here. That is the Gentiles. That's what Gentiles means. Nations, everybody else, the outsiders, those not set apart, those not of the Jewish people, those not marked by circumcision, all the other guys, the bad guys, us, we get in on the blessing of who? Of Abraham and all the goodness that flows out of that. The nations, the Gentiles, the people that the Jews battled and drove out of Canaan so they could possess that land that God promised to them, those people would inherit the blessing promised to Abraham. Friends, Scripture really does preach good news. It is remarkable that God would show mercy to us that he would count us righteous, and that he would make us heirs of an eternal blessing, and that he would even dwell in us by his own spirit. That is good news. Paul summarizes this good news in verse 9. He says, sums it all up this way. He says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. How does God evaluate us? Paul spills the beans. He gives the answer right away. (laughs) By hearing with faith. It's clear. That is how God evaluates us. But what about the other option? What about works of the law? Well, Paul still addresses this, and we'll see why. Option two, by works of the law. How does God evaluate us? Option two, works of the law. Paul makes this statement in verse 10. Listen to this. For all who rely, so as compared to by hearing with faith, all who rely on the works, or, or, or on works of the law, are under a curse. Wait, hold on. You're telling me that those who are of the works of the law, the law that was given by God to Moses for God's people, Moses, the descendant of Abraham, to whom God gave the precursor to the law, circumcision, those who are of that are under a curse? Shouldn't they be under a blessing? Aren't 
Isn't that why God gave his law? Doesn't Paul write later in Romans 7? Paul himself says this of the law. He says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. How then can it bring a curse? It brings a curse to all those who are of the law. Craig Keener translates this phrase where it says, those who are of the law, he translates it as the law works people as compared to the hearing with faith people. The ESV translates it as we read this morning, those who rely on works of the law. That gets at the heart of it. The gist is this, those who count on, lean on, hope in their own works, their own performance in carrying out the law that God has given us, those who do that sit under a, under a curse and not a blessing. Make no mistake, doing works of the law isn't bad. That's good. Doing works of the law isn't bad, but relying on them for justification, for being declared righteous before God, that is bad. That will bring you only a curse. Now, where does Paul get this concept? Is he just coming up with this on his own? He's a, is he just a fanboy of faith? And he's like, ah, forget the law. Who, who cares? No. Paul's argument here, as above, is based on Scripture. He goes to Scripture to make his point. As a quick side note, Paul knew his Bible, we, and from that derived much joy and, and solidarity about his basis for being evaluated by God. And so, as a quick, quick application for us, know your Bible. Let's, let's be grounded in Scripture and what's written there. Let's read it. Let's listen to it. Let's meditate on it. Let's memorize it. Let's sing it like we did this morning. The scriptures declare good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the scripture, this good news debunks all other false hopes. Let's get that good news into us. So what is Paul's argument from scripture? Well, you know, how, how, can, he, how can he say that the law works people are actually under a curse? Well, he quotes from a variety of scriptures, including the law itself which seems counterintuitive, right? You would think the law would be trying to say, hey, do, do the law, follow, follow me. But guess what? Even the law itself has some, has some clues for us here. He quotes first, Paul does, from Deuteronomy. He says, for it is written, so first quote, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul's calling to Galatians' minds uh, the passages in Scripture that talk not only about the blessing for following the law, because there are those passages, but also the curse for failing to keep the law. So if you don't do all these things, there's consequences. Near the end of Deuteronomy, as, as, as Moses' um, life and ministry are coming to a close, this is where this passage comes from, his life and ministry are coming to a close, he's giving the Israelites some final instructions. They've been wandering the, uh, in the wilderness for 40 years, a generation has died out, Moses is going to be the last to go, and then they're going to pass over and take over the new promised land uh, under Joshua's leadership. They're about to enter that good, broad land promised by Abraham. And Moses instructs, this is one of his final instructions near the end of Deuteronomy, he instructs the Levites, once you're in that promised land, I want you to, to go up on this mountaintop and proclaim to the people of Israel publicly 12 curses to which the people are supposed to respond after they say, curse be someone who does this or that. And all the people are supposed to say, amen. As in, yep, let it be so. Let that curse be on us if we don't follow the law that God gave us. And the final curse that is to be heralded from this mountain 
is the one that's already quoted by Paul. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Paul's essentially saying this. Oh, you want to follow the law to obtain God's blessing? You want to take that route? Okay, all right, we can go that direction. But if you want to do it, you got to do it perfectly. You have to keep every single command that God gave Israel. You have to always love your neighbor. You, you must never gossip. You must be patient without fail. Unless you abide by absolutely all that is written in the law, you remain under a curse because the law brings a curse for those who fail to keep it. And guess what? You can't keep it. You will fail. But wait a minute, didn't God give the law with all of its blessings and curses so that God would keep it? Isn't that the point? Is the law misleading us to believe that, that it can give us life and right relationship with God? Is it giving us false hope? Well, Paul addresses these questions that are probably in the Galatians' minds by quoting from Habakkuk and Leviticus. He starts in verse 11. He says, now it is evident, he's continuing his argument, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, this is Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So Paul makes a claim that it is evident it's clear, it's unmistakable, apparently not to his opponents. They didn't believe this, but he's saying, if you, if you know your Bible, if you look at Scripture carefully, you're going to see this. He says, it's evident that no one is justified by God, before God, by the law. And what evidence does he provide? Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's saying, if you read your Old Testament carefully, you're going to realize that even the Old Testament scriptures do not hold out hopes for us being counted by God as righteous on the basis of us keeping the law. That's not the hope that they hold out. Rather, scripture makes it clear, the righteous live what? Not by works, not by their performance, not by their good deeds. The righteous shall live by faith, belief in God, not their own performance. And just to be clear, Paul states that the law is not of faith. He makes it clear. Okay, well, what if, what if it takes faith to believe the law, right? God gave us the law, so I'm believing that's from him, and it requires faith to believe that that's the means by which I have access to him. Isn't that some sort of faith? I'm trusting in that process. Paul says, nope, the law is not of faith. What's his argument for that? He says, the one who does them shall live by them. This is interesting. And he gets into the weeds here, but the one who does them shall live by them. Paul is saying the law, he's quoting the law saying, guess what? If you keep the law, the one who does them shall live by them. You will experience the fruits and the enjoyment and the blessing of the law. That's probably what the Galatian, uh, uh, Paul's opponents to the Galatians were saying. The one who does them shall live by them. Keep the law, great, you get life. Paul says, nope. The point here is that Yes, the one who does them shall live by them, but guess what? No one can do them. And therefore, the law isn't, isn't an expression of faith. It's an expression of our own self-confidence. It's our own works. And so uh, the, trying to keep the law doesn't require faith in God. It only requires faith in yourself. That's the key. The law is not of faith for the, 
the righteous, uh, the one who does them shall live by them. Those trying to follow the law, they don't express faith in God. They have faith in themselves. Since the righteous live by faith, then no one is declared righteous through the law, which is not of faith. Here's an analogy. Let's take a breath for a second from all the details. You're in a courtroom. God sits enthroned as the judge. He's the righteous, impartial, perfect ruler of the universe, ready to give a verdict about you. You are the defendant. Charges have been brought against you for wrongdoing, for breaking God's law. And, and that's us. We stand accused. We must give a defense for why God should declare us righteous instead of guilty. Now, if we rely on works of the law, here's what Paul's saying, you think you've hired a defense attorney. You think you've got the law going to bat for us, giving God the judge a reason to proclaim us not guilty. You want to rely on that? You hire him, you bring him into the courtroom? Surprise, surprise. He does not take the role of defense attorney. He takes the role of plaintiff. That is, the law brings charges against you. That's the law's role in the courtroom of God. He accuses and ruthlessly uh, accuses us ruthlessly for every wrongdoing we've ever done. He does not let up. He does not let out any details. The law is merciless. It's saying you did this wrong, and you did this wrong, and you did that wrong, and you had this wrong thought, and that impartial motive, or partial motive that was, that was mixed with, with good and, and own selfishness. And to our surprise, we're left defenseless with our petty inadequate works. The elsewhere in Scripture says, our righteousness are as filthy rags. And so when God the judge hears our case, he makes this verdict. Guilty, condemned, cursed. Those who rely on their works for their justification before God will be utterly dismayed when they learn that their works do nothing but accuse them and bring them under God's curse. How does God evaluate us? If it's by works of the law, then we're condemned and hopeless. Option two, obtaining favor with God by works of the law is no option at all. It is only by hearing with faith that God justifies. Now, there is a critical question we have not yet answered. We've answered the question, how does God evaluate us, with the correct answer, by hearing with faith. That is correct. It's an incomplete answer, though. We haven't answered this follow-up question. Faith in what? After all, we've seen that someone can have faith, faith in their own works, and still be condemned before God. So what, then, are we to place our faith in if we are to be justified and blessed by God? And we must place our faith not in ourselves, not in the doctrine, as we learned last week, not in our understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. We must place our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. That's our third point. Faith in Christ. Paul brings us home. He does not leave us without these last two verses and good news. He brings us home, verses 13, 14. After setting out these two options, a blessing through faith and curse of the works, he says this, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham 
might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, Christ is the key. He is the fulcrum upon which all these other truths pivot. Without Jesus, listen to this, without Jesus, faith does nothing. It's no good to you. Why not? Because the law requires a curse for all law breakers. The legal demands of the law that everyone who fails to abide by all that is written in the law of God's holy word should bear an eternal curse from God himself. These legal demands must be satisfied. They cannot be ignored. They cannot be dismissed. Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the profit, what you get, the wages of sin is death. That's what those who sin get, death. Someone must receive the wages for sin and someone must bear the curse of the law. But good news, brothers and sisters, for all who place their faith in Christ, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? How does he get us out of that bind? Verse 13, by becoming a curse for us. How do we know Christ became a curse for us? The second half of verse 13 says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ crucified on a Roman cross was hanged on a tree. He was cursed. In fact, he was cursed by God himself. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't hyperbole. God had forsaken Christ on that cross. He turned away his loving gaze from his beloved son and instead poured out his furious wrath on him. Why? Because Christ was, in John's word, the Lamb of God who takes away onto himself the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin. Christ became sin. Christ became a curse. But not only that, he became sin for our sake. He became a curse for us. To revisit that illustration, the courtroom of God, with all of God's judgment still sitting there and the law's accusations being berated toward us, Christ doesn't just come as our defense attorney and say, no, 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 he's fine. He did better than you realize. I'm for him. I'm going I'm I'm to give a defense. He does more than that. He does not just defend us. He himself takes our seat as the accused. He incurs upon himself all of our guilt, and he himself embodies our sin. He became sin who knew no sin. And upon him, God makes the judgment, guilty, condemned, cursed, and we go free. By dying on a cross, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In the words of the song, to quench the wrath of God, his throne, that's Christ, his throne would he leave, becoming sin and death, my curse to receive. Hallelujah to saving grace. Hallelujah to thee. Hallelujah for death has lost its grip on me. Christ has done it all. 
He became sin and a curse for us that we might be cleared of our guilt, redeemed from the law's unrelenting curse. But that's not even all that Christ accomplished on the cross. He doesn't just redeem us from the curse for as much of good news as that is. He doesn't just put us back on morally neutral ground as in the beginning of the Garden of Eden where God made Adam and Eve perfect, sinless, and then it was up to them to decide their fate. I've given you a command, don't eat of the tree of the Garden of you know, Good and Evil. If you mess that up, curse comes. Christ doesn't just bring us back to that point where, okay, morally neutral, no. He doesn't just take away the lost curse. He also secures God's blessing for us. Verse 14 celebrates this truth. It says, Christ redeemed us from the law's curse so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Every blessing promised by God, all of the benefits of being heirs of Abraham are secured for us by Christ Jesus himself. We do nothing to earn them. Christ alone makes it possible for the blessing of Abraham to come to us, Gentile sinners. And it's Christ's work on the cross alone by whom we receive even the spirit of Jesus himself with all of his power and his comfort and his strength. Friends, don't trust in your own performance or your own knowledge or your own faith even. Trust in Jesus who accomplished absolutely everything that we could not. Lean wholly on a Savior who had to die in your place so that you might receive the blessing that he deserved and he gets the curse that you deserved. Cast yourself on Christ alone for the basis of you being made right with God. If you currently are not trusting in Jesus alone, then do so today. Take advantage of God's grace. This is the best deal you will ever encounter. It's free. You can't earn it. And to think that you can only insults God. Simply admit that you have violated God's perfect standards, that you deserve his judgment, and then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abandon all the other false hopes you have for satisfying a holy and righteous and perfect God, and trust in Jesus and nothing else. And if you want to do that today, if you have other questions about that, I would love to talk with you. Um, or if you don't talk to me, talk to someone who else uh, who you know to be a Christian. Life and death are on the line here. Cursing and blessing. Eternal cursing. Eternal blessing on the line. Don't pass up the opportunity. If you are trusting in Christ already, trust in me more. Christian, do you feel that God is disappointed with you? Do you ever feel that way? Like he's like, eh, yeah, you're my son, but you're kind of like annoying or, you know, it's, I wish you would do better. You know, you're kind of the black sheep of the family. Then remember that Jesus, Jesus, don't think of what you've done. Remember what Jesus did, that Jesus always did the things that pleased his Father. And that you were counted by God as having done every single one of those things. That's the basis for God's perspective of you, what Christ has done. 
Are you facing a trial and are unsure about God's care for you? You don't know, why is this happening? Are you upset with me? Do you not love me? What's going on? Why would you allow me to endure this? Then remember, he sent his only beloved son, his only son, to face the biggest trial possible in your stead. Jesus stared down the barrel of God's wrath, and he said, spare this one. Take my life instead. Are you haunted by doubts that God will not accept you on that final day. He's going to somehow find fault and, and, and you are just berated with fears and uncertainty about your position before God in the final day. If you're trusting Christ, remember this. God will look at you just as he sees his own son. And he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, we have no hope apart from the cross. Our standing before God, both in this life now and in the life to come, is firmly fixed in Jesus Christ, in his perfect works, his atoning death, and in nothing else. Let's never lose sight of that. Let's pray. God of heaven, Thank you for wanting relationship with us. Thank you that your law is good and perfect and holy. And Lord, thank you for never expecting us to uphold your perfect standards. But even before Abraham, you planned, Lord, to send your son to do all that the law required. And Lord, we thank you that we know good news that Christ died in our stead so that we might be eternally blessed with you. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Thank you that he lives within us to make us joyful and bold and comforted. We thank you, Lord. We praise you that Christ has accomplished everything we could not. Help us, Lord. Trust him more and more and more. It's in his name we ask. Amen.